Welcome to the Metaphorist's Magazine podcast, your home for beautifully made speculative fiction. The magazine is edited by B. Morris Allen, and I'm your host, Matt Gomez. This week's story is Saving the Whales by C.J. Eric. C.J. Eric writes in multiple genres, publishes novels in a space fantasy series, and dabbles in poetry. He lives in the Dallas area with his wife and their rescue superhero dog, Saber Girl, calls his sourdough bread starter, Ursula, Kayla Gwynn, and cooks crazy good Cajun food for a Midwest Yankee. Find him online at cjericfiction.com. That's c-j-e-r-i-c-k-fiction.com on Facebook at cj.eric.9 or on Instagram at c-e-e underscore j-a-y underscore e-r-i-c-k. Let's jump in. Niami misses the whales. She misses the bowhead, the fin, and the southern right. She misses the grand blue, the understated minky, and the elegant say. She misses the way water bulged like candy glass over their backs when they rose to the surface, and how it broke into liquid shards. She misses the billowing rainbows of their exhalations on cold mornings, and the percussion cannons of their tails when they announced their preposterously powerful dives to be. She didn't always miss the whales. Once, she watched them, idolizing them, yearning to be with them grokking the water and not rocking in her rowboat or rolling in her zodiac. It is hard now to crinkle her eyes at the sun setting on the washboard Pacific, the delicious smells of crusty sea salt and delicately rotting seaweed in her nose, the shush of waves not in her ears, but somehow over and around and through her, feeling the voids where the whales should be. Her first summer post-junior year, she spent wet through her suit and behind her ears. She spent hours leaning over the side of the inflatable with an aluminum pole like a lightning rod, plunging it into the galvanic water. Algae-laden, the water was tarnished green, like corroded bronze. At the end of the rod was magic, a flashy new hydrophone, analog since this was 1975, hardwired to a plastic-wrapped tape recorder the size of a suitcase large enough to hold her entire wardrobe of jeans, tees, tanks, hair clips, and caps, and the three Lycra one-piece swimsuits she rotated throughout the summer. Behind her, the annoying drum of San Diego, a million miles from the farm in Illinois, interfered with the recording. She couldn't hear the sounds they were recording. She and her research partner, Floyd, whom she'd picked because he was gay and she could trust him not to use her exuberance like a date-rape drug, as one professor had tried to. The voices of the greys were well below human hearing, but she'd manipulated them through the miracle of mid-70s sound manipulation, applied in the biology department's sound room. Now their eerie songs, replayed through the stereo speakers, touched something primal within her, like a deep siren call. The come-hither seduction of sensuous clicks and thrums and moans exotic and otherworldly. Her senses, once peaked, would never rest. Whales went missing. First, the pods of minkies that frequented the Central Pacific failed to arrive that year. 
Biologists blamed it on the failure of the last major shelf of Antarctic ice, a diversion in the ocean currents, red tides, overfishing, and even sunspots. Niemi knew better, but her suspicions were confirmed through a chance encounter. She'd been following a small pod of the slender gray creatures at a distance, quietly rowing after them, letting the airfoil sail of her little sun-bleached white sailboat push her along as much as possible. Lights appeared in the sky. Two silent machines the color and size and shape of pre-World War dirigibles lowered as one imagined the carcass of a whale might fall into the lightless deep. The craft settled into the waves, kilometers from shore, well away from the sight of land. Great doors opened in the vessel's ends, and whales swam into them two by two. And then the great craft closed their doors and lifted steadily into the sky, their lights extinguished, until they grew as small as sailing ships curving away over the horizon and disappeared. Niamh had watched, asking herself why these ships were taking the whales and why the whales were boarding without a struggle. In the weeks that followed, she contacted every agency she thought would have interest in her sightings, in the disappearances. But what agency would have the authority to investigate? The California State Police? After three calls and a visit to the headquarters in San Diego County, they refused to speak to her. The CIA? Probably weather balloons, was all they offered, and dismissed her. A young biologist from NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, met with her briefly, but tried to push her observations toward illegal whaling operations, probably by Chinese fishing companies, which were suffering as ocean stocks of fish collapsed further from the unrecoverable levels in the 2020s. Lights in the sky. Alien visitors harvesting the world's cetaceans. No one would believe her. She lived on the ocean, helped conduct whale counts. She pursued a degree in marine biology, cetacean focus, and manhandled her way through a PhD. The degree and her well-taken thesis on cetacean language led to grants, and the grants led to the books published, the ones that sold at last after so many rejections and failures to launch, Living with Earth's Smartest Beings, and Love and Sex Among Krill and Plankton. She became a name then, cited in oceanographic journals and doomed environmental legislation. But the writing wasn't about credibility or notoriety. It was about money. The money she needed, and there were many things she needed. The world turns on coinage. She turned hers into a submersible, a truck-sized, two-person submarine. Electric. Quiet. Loaded with sensing equipment that beat most space missions. She called it Greyfin. Her mother died, the woman she most loved, but feared as the one most likely to lead her back to a practical career, Niemi. And then seven months later, her broken-hearted father passed as well. A man she'd never liked, but in whom she'd found a kinship in their complex, seldom-spoken feelings for her mother and each other. Her brother and sisters divided the estate among themselves, leaving her out, since she was obviously more well-off than they were, though they knew nothing of sleeping on a wave-soaked dock or spending one's own money on teaching supplies. Those costs even a prestigious West Coast university passed on to untenured professors. But seven years after she had seen the lift of the minky, had seen the lights dropping to the ocean again and again, she had her machine, her mechanical stalking whale, her way to find out why. Why? 
The skyship, dull gray and oblong, dropped like a deflating helium balloon from the tortured sky toward the open waters of the Pacific. Silent, even several hundred miles from Baja where no one was going to hear it. It descended slightly butt-heavy, angled like Greyfin powering across the surface at full throttle, which was about to happen. Timing. Timing. The whales were out there, 500 meters by the radar, lolling and spouting vapor in the waves. Four big blues, three females and one male. No calves, despite it being birthing season, which was sad and one explanation for all this. Niamh's hands felt numb and twitchy on the controls. The alien vessel leveled out and settled into the water. A white wave spread outward from the hull. After a few eternally long minutes, a vast door opened in the end facing the whales, like the mouth of an earthworm about to consume a bit of cornmeal sprinkled into its bait container. The whales circled and then lined up two by two and swam toward the craft, but still a good 200 meters from it. Niami waited. The first two spouted mightily, as if kicking the dust from their sandals, and entered the maw of the ship. As the second pair moved within a hundred meters, Niami grasped the control handles and willed her sub to life. She was thrown back into the seat as the nose came up. Four thousand electric horses leaped ahead. Past the side view screens flowed dirty green water, plastic junk, rust-colored debris, and the broken skeletons of maritime equipment. Her machine was stealthy quiet, but still the whine of the motors was in her ears like Triassic hornets. The rangefinder counted down the numbers. 400 meters. 3. 150. The vessel's door closed, and the ship lifted from the waves, streamers of water falling from its sides like dishwater from an aluminum urn. It lifted into the sky just like the first two she'd observed, shrinking slowly, sailing over the horizon of the darkening sky. No! She heard the ragged rage in her voice, the childlike cry of frustration and abandonment. And then the light paused, descended, grew. The gray craft, now charcoal in the late twilight, touched the water, and the great doors opened again. It stood in the water, motionless, as if anchored by rigid pilings to the ocean floor 2,000 feet below. She eased her submarine forward, passing into the black mouth of the ship, watching the stars covered by a sky-colored sheet. The doors closed behind her ship, and all was dark. She could barely breathe. She assumed they lifted into the sky, although she couldn't tell because there was no sense of motion, no acceleration, no feeling of changing momentum. She struggled to find a term for the beings who had taken her into their ship. Calling them extraterrestrial would be Earth-centric, as if her planet were the center of the universe of intelligent species, when in fact, the very existence of these beings and their ships proved otherwise. Space travelers would imply they'd come from the endless void out beyond the wispy extremes of the atmosphere, when she had no idea where they'd come from. And almost certainly, they'd not come from the void itself. And aliens wasn't just human-centric, but also politically disrespectful, since humans were at least an alien to these beings, as the other way around. So she settled for the visitors, which seemed to cover just about anything non-human. They allowed her to rock in the hull of the ship in complete darkness. She began to wonder if they expected her to navigate by sonar. She remembered her sonar then, and, risking offense, pinged around her ship, 
finding it rolling gently in the center of a large tank with featureless walls, shaped like two bathtubs stacked one upside down over the other. Two whale tails disappeared from the far end of the tank, rising upwards through a porthole into another chamber above her, apparently. Once they were through, dull blue lights came on, and another door opened in the ceiling above her. Her submersible eased through it with no action on her part, rising into a smaller, egg-shaped chamber, where metal rods protruded from the walls like fingers pushing through a balloon, cradling her ship gently as if holding a shiny black pouch of stingray eggs. Water drained from the chamber in seconds. Join us, said a voice. It was female, brash and harsh, brassy like someone speaking from a conch shell. A voice she disliked when she heard it in taped interviews. Her own voice. The main hatchway of the sub slid into its recess with a barely audible hum. The air that flowed in through the open door held all the taste and smell of boiled water. A metal walkway pushed out from the wall and stuck to the ship just below the port, dull like aluminum, soft like plastic as she walked along it step by step. Beyond the doorway was a small chamber, surrounded on all sides and the top by clear glass, the walls of water tanks all around. A woman stood with her back to Niamh, and she knew it would be herself, even before the hologram or whatever it was turned to gaze at her over its shoulder assessing her so closely and with such human intensity and expression that she couldn't convince herself the image wasn't real. She fought back the urge to touch it. You believe they are beautiful, said the woman. Beyond her, the four blue whales floated in an infinite pool, rising slowly to breathe, then sinking slowly under the surface. The otherwise colorless water was foggy brown with krill, and occasionally one of the whales would open its great beak-like mouth to allow the rich water to fill it. I do. She was overwhelmed as always by the beauty of the whales. The impending loss struck her like a migraine, twisting at the bones in her forehead. Why? All of us are different, and yet we are the same. The woman explained that consciousness existed beyond the physical boundaries of the brain and of the body, and that all touched each other. When the predominant beings of a world, she didn't use the word planet, as that excluded many places where rational beings lived, were able to harmonize, a stable tranquility could bloom, one that could last for thousands of years. These beings, said the other Niami, they are special. They have a gift and a yearning for harmony which we've never seen before. Such a shame you humans don't recognize this, and you harm them. Some of us cherish them, said Niami. The visitor said, We have observed and, at times, sought to promote harmony on earth, as is our calling. But despite these efforts, humans have not harmonized with your world, with the other rational beings there, such as the primates, the cephalopods, the avians, and, of course, the whales. Niamh said, But we do achieve harmony. Sometimes. We organize. We achieve great things. We help each other during crises and natural disaster. We even harmonize in song, just as the whales do. Truth. But political and resource organization is a sad caricature of the true, deep connection of a harmonized world. Your race has been given enough time, 
and these beautiful beings are needed elsewhere. Where? Why? asked Niamh. Every world seeks harmony. These beings can help, and they deserve better. The woman told Niamh they were telling her this because she was one of the few who listened. Sometimes. If there was hope, it lay with her and others like her. Are you taking all the whales? she asked. They speak across entire oceans, said the other Niamh, shaking her head, perhaps preoccupied as she was with the whale's beauty. No, we will only save the ones who wish to go. The orcas and some dolphin species have chosen to stay. Their food supplies are doing well for now, and they like interacting with humans. We will come back for them if they call. Will you bring the other whales back? Once their work is done? No. Niemi paused, frozen by an aching she couldn't explain or readily locate. May I go with them? No. Nothing else. No explanation, no conditions. Just no. Niemi wasn't allowed to protest or plead or fall to her knees and beg. One minute she was standing talking to this other Niemi or a diagram that looked and sounded exactly like video and audio of her, and the next she awoke in her submersible, washing back and forth in two-meter waves in the open sea. The ship and the whales were gone. She sat and rocked and wept for as long as it took. Niami convinced a department head to support her for another grant and she used it to finance expeditions to record whale song and computer time to translate. She followed the herds, playing their own recorded voices to them. She paid for seeding of plankton and devised outriggers for Greyfin to scoop waste from the bleary seawater. And when that didn't make a dent in the floating and sinking trash, she had automobile-sized drone submarines built, rigged with nets to catch trash. But they did little except tangle with fish and turtles and jellyfish. The entropy of waste was pervasive and resistant. Whale sightings and counts continued to dwindle, pointing to cataclysmic losses. Scientists and politicians and fishermen argued not over the why, but over whether this was a good or bad thing, since whales were known to reduce fishing trawler yields, and feeding the world was hard, so hard, so bloody hard to make profitable. She spent much of her time following the orca pods, continuing to journal and sketch individuals, just as she'd done since her first whale-watching excursion as a young teen on a school trip, the prize for winning a climate science award. Now she had Grayfin, where she lived most days. One day, she languished like an empty water bottle in calm waters off of San Diego, where one couldn't see the land and where few boats ventured. She was there because bright lights in the sky had been reported for several nights over the previous month. She turned the sound system off, the sonar sensors, the radar, the infrared thermographs, the radio. Was it harmony she felt then, alone, like a dead piece of kelp being nibbled by tiny crabs? The harmony of the carcass of a say whale stinking the water with the promise of food and habitat for months before sinking into the lightless depths to provide fodder and shelter for blind eels and tube worms and beaked fish that would never see a rainbow? 
Or was it just loneliness? Alienation? Her eyes were to the sky, and she didn't notice them until they were nearly upon her. Black and white looping shapes in the water. A dozen or more. Bulky cetacean missiles, moving silently as one body, as only beings who knew each other well could. She didn't move as the pod of orcas approached and circled her. She kept the hydrophones off to avoid spooking the pod, but their clicks and whistles resonated through the craft's thin titanium shell. They flowed around her in an intricate swirl of day and night bodies, then away into a funnel, leaving her. She was drawn to them as into a whirlpool. She touched the controls and followed across open water, following their bulging rhythms and infrequent breaths to where she didn't know, and suddenly didn't care. But when they arrived, it was obvious why. An old container ship, sunk so that its deck lay just above the surface, flat and opened like an ice floe. It wasn't on any maps she knew of, but sonar showed it anchored to the bottom by strands of fishing net and cable, probably communication cables mistakenly dredged up, spelling its doom. On the ship were dozens of sea lions, letting the afternoon sun broil their skin to a fearsome pink, like monsters from some children's anime film. Niami breached Greyfin a hundred yards away and climbed out to watch, a small handheld camera ready. Three of the orcas stormed the ship's deck, landing on their bellies with only their tails in the water, each grasping a mature sea lion in its mouth, wiggling their water-wet bodies back into the water, shaking the lions and dragging them down through the broken pane of the ocean's surface, down into clouds of red, before disappearing out of sight. The lions scrambling on the deck roared and retreated to the center of the ship, crushing smaller females, pushing others off into the water, where some didn't make it back to the safety of the ship's deck before being sucked down by domino torpedoes. She knew she should record this event, but she lacked the strength to raise and point the camera. For whom would she take the pictures? For whom capture it on video? For some vulgar wildlife reality show? Another outlet for those who enjoyed the violence of nature, never seeing the necessity or reason for it? Niami lost track of time, watching the orcas circle the ship. The lions crowded together in a wary crush of gray-pink bodies. Niami was wondering what she should do next, knowing it was already too late to return to the harbor before night, and not caring much about that either. A single orca approached, a large female, with clean lines as if painted, her shorter female's dorsal fin curving at the end, and a gray marking shaped like a human hand at the end of her left pectoral fin. Niami remembered this whale woman, a mother she'd followed for three breeding seasons, one who'd raised three calves with brutal efficiency and care. She'd named the woman Maleva, for reasons she couldn't remember. Maleva swam to Niami's vessel and spit a melon-sized chunk of sea lion flesh onto the sun-beaten hull of the sub, like a grill chef dropping a slab of cod onto an aluminum fry pan. It sizzled. Maleva rocked her face in the waves, blowing breath expectantly. Niami eyed the fatty mass and gray hide on the hull, and her stomach grumbled. Maleva whistled and blew a geyser of hot vapor toward Niami, showering her in acrid spit. Niami scooted to the edge of the sub, scooped up the flesh, and sat holding it, feeling her throat tighten at the glowing, shiny meat, which seemed to pulse in her hands. She bit, 
chewed the jelly-like flesh, tasted blood and rank oil and noxious umami, gagged and swallowed. She swallowed another bite. She vomited into the water. She bit again, swallowed, vomited. Her head rocked, vision blackening. She fell to her side on the hull, unable to rise. The orca eased alongside her sub, its black eye almost invisible against its ebon skin, the large white patch above it like the luminous white eye of a phantom. The whale's gray saddle patch curved about her back like a knitted sweater. It turned, swirling, and lifted a flipper and swept it away from the craft, the gray hand patch at its tip beckoning. Niami thought about her snorkel gear, donning the wetsuit over her thin cotton shirt and shorts and the flippers, but instead let her body slide from the sub's hull into the cold water. Immediately, her nausea passed, and she bobbed easily in the infinite soup of ocean, her clothing clinging to her like tissue paper. Maleva's head bobbed in the light waves. Was this a nod? The great black and white being slid away like a ghost, her flipper rising once to beckon again. Other orca had gathered at a distance, blowing steam, whistling, pulsations of sound tapping at Niamh's skin. Maleva, now twenty yards from the ship, whistled loudly. Niamh pushed away, settling into an easy swim. She could swim for hours without tiring, so much time spent in the water. But it was cold, and she was thin and would chill quickly in the Pacific water. She came within ten feet of the huge woman whale. Maleva stroked her tail to ease away, leading her away. Niamh swam. Her submersible gray fin fell away behind her. Maleva played this game several times, letting Niamh approach, then pulling away. Cat and mouse? The other whales swam with him, to each side, remaining yards away, like spectators at a long-distance race, following the runners. Then, after a hard, muscular thrust of tail, Maleva dove and surfaced, facing Niamh, blocking her path, just ten feet in front. She waited. Niamh paused, then swam toward the whale woman. She was at the whale's mercy, hundreds of yards from Greyfin more vulnerable than the sea lions Maleva's pod had attacked earlier. She stopped just outside touching reach of the whale's black and white snout, which bobbed like a marker buoy, shining as rubberized paint. The whistling of the other whales stopped. There was only the sound of the ocean around them, the susurrus of the waves, the clicks of sea creatures, the bellowing of the sea lions on the rogue ship the screes of gulls and shearwaters scavenging the remains or hunting the small fish drawn to the blood. Maleva swam to the side, around Niamh. She turned, opened her mouth, and gripped Niamh by the chest. Teeth dug into Niamh's skin in a hundred places. She closed her eyes. Maleva held her in her mouth, pulled her, brushed her stomach with her great sandpaper tongue. Niamh fought the urge to push the whale away, to throw a fist at Maleva's eye. Maleva raised her partly from the water, swam in a circle, as if showing this prize to the others. Then she opened her mouth and released Niamh. She swam ten feet away and waited, lolling in the waves, once again a dark phantom with ghostly patches. Niamh felt the sting of seawater on small cuts on her side, her arm, her belly. She could breathe, but she wanted to vomit again. 
What did the whale want from her now? It lay expectantly in the water, waiting. She could swim back for her sub if the currents weren't taking it away from her, beyond her reach. But that would be returning to who she had been before this night, this active connection from Maleva. That's what it was, surely. The whale could have killed her, but hadn't. The pod could have ignored her and swum away, but remained. The others again swimming in a circle around her and Maleva, whistling, blowing breath. They were asking, are you one of us? Niami leaned forward, stroked the water with her cold arms, feeling the stings, the chill, the touch of microscopic stingers from tiny krill and squid, how her skin loved the water, the caress as it passed over her arms, her shoulders, her back. She reached Maleva in a dozen strong strokes. She gripped the flipper nearest her, the one with the shape of a gray human hand. She gripped the end of the flipper in her teeth, held it there, pulled. Maleva's small black eye, two feet away from hers, studied her. She held the flipper in her teeth as long as Maleva had held her body, then released and kicked away. She placed two fingers in her mouth and blew air, spitting water, phlegm, giving a harsh rasping whine at first, and then a loud clear whistle, which cut the air and breeze, silencing the birds and the other whales. Maleva nodded, whistled back. She swam to Niamh, leaned over to allow the woman to grip her dorsal fin. With Niamh clinging, Maleva snapped her tail, suddenly a whistling steamship plowing the waves. She covered the quarter mile to Greyfin in a few moments, Niamh holding tight with both hands. At the sub, Niamh, suddenly very tired, eased back into the water, swam to the boarding ladder, climbed onto the sub's hull and knelt there, too tired to stand. Maleva, head pointing straight up, spun twice like a great black and white top, then swam away, pausing once to turn back, before disappearing beneath the dancing moonlit surface, leaving hardly a ripple in her wake. They should, all creatures, leave the world that way, with barely a ripple marking their passage. The next two times Niamh met Maleva and the whales, she ate of what she was offered, sea lion meat, or seal, or chunks of raw tuna or shark. She vomited. After that, she didn't vomit again. Two calves were born in one of the new conservation sea parks, Whales Forever, just south of San Diego, from one orca female. Twins, an almost impossible miracle. A sign, many pro-captivity lobbyists said, that their programs were needed and helpful. The foundation would preserve the remaining whales through reproduction and nurturing programs, funded by interactive aquariums, agility and skills displays, swimming with the whales events. It was harmony of a sort with the underlying dark shadow of corporate profit driving the enterprise. Niami was running a monthly educational program at middle schools along the west coast of the U.S. and into Canada usually, but sometimes invited to progressive districts near Chicago, New England, even Austin and Minneapolis. Her theme was simple. Whales are people. She was loved or hated, invited or banned, and always, always threatened. 
For her own protection, she became a licensed firearm carrier and hated the need. At the news of the miracle birth, she paused her program, spending more time on the water, her Eden, the garden she'd been pulled away from too often as she taught and wrote. Even she had bills to pay, and the grants came less often. She was too controversial. Miracle calves, young whale children who would be raised wrong, never learn what they needed to survive in the sea, never know the true joy of pod life, never learn to kill for food and survival. She requested a meeting with the Sea Park administrators, on the premise of being allowed to produce multimedia works for promotion of the twins, watch their lives grow. It would be like an orca version of the Hollywood film Truman, lives lived in a virtual sea, a morning swim in simulated hunting, whistling conversations with the head keeper, other staff, and virtual podmates, games and entertainment with her mother and the other aquatic residents, fun for all and all the funding they'd need for the next 10 years. Her work was known then, over a dozen books, webinars, sea cliff retreats for the well-heeled. She wasn't despised as much as she would be, not yet labeled an ultra-libertard, or an ocean head, a whale groomer. The foundation accepted her request. The offices where they met were located on the harbor, The ground floor conference room in the white pillared mausoleum-like box was all windows on one wall, with a clear view of the newly built aquarium sitting near the water, like a silver-domed cosmetic box pushed there by some great hand and left to face the surf. It was a white concrete monument, not a home for sentient beings. Yet these people thought they understood cetaceans. She'd come alone. They'd brought video documentarians, local politicians, corporate sponsors. After introductions, she listened through two hours of effusive promotional ideas, their vision of a grand cooperative union between human and orca, an experiment in sustainable harmony, cooperation, and mutual benefit. After this, as her patient silence endured, their enthusiasm flagged, their voices one by one fell quiet. The room's attention shifted unconsciously to the foundation's director, Mrs. Delilah Furness, founder and CEO of God's True Foods, an organic testing and services corporation, a woman who Niamh might have liked, had she not been so much the aggressive charitable type, for whom altruism was just another arena. At the end of the presentations, Mrs. Furness asked Niamh, What do you think? To which Niamh said simply, It's been tried. But not like we intend. This isn't just a sea zoo we're planning. This is to be a real working environment. Humans will not make all the decisions. The orcas and dolphins here will be voting members, and we'd like you to show us to hear their voices. A pang of earnestness struck Niamh, and she almost fell for the spell. Mrs. Furness was a gifted visionary. One wanted to believe in anything she set forth. As long as there are walls, said Niamh, This will be not a zoo, not a zoological garden. It will be a prison, and the whales will not speak truly. You have been blessed with a miracle birth of fully sentient beings. You must let them go. Back to the sea, now, while they can still adapt. If you don't act now, they will die. Perhaps not physically, but emotionally. They will not live as they would wish. Mrs. Furness sat silently for a moment, 
her face reddening. She said at last, We respected you and offered you our hand in cooperation, but you've come under false pretenses with no intention of joining us. This meeting is over. The construction of the facility continued. Larger tanks, natural plants and settings, like nothing ever built before, and the Orca twins and their mother seemed well. They were allowed to interact with orchids in the wild, at least at a distance, since the wild ones stayed away. The captives grew less healthy, less vocal, eating less of the farmed fish they were given, more prone to lethargy. Niami was asked about these events during one of her podcasts. Her words were few. They have heard the voices of their cousins, and they know of the true world they are missing. Two months later, and six months after the miracle birth, a summer strain of COVID virus swept through, this strain virulent among most mammals. The mother and calves were stricken, and only one calf survived. After two months of antiviral treatments and round-the-clock care, it was a thin version of itself, alive but hardly thriving. Niemi was asked to speak at a contentious panel discussion on ocean farming, which many felt was the only way to address food shortages among the world's 11 billion humans. Each panelist was allowed closing statements, and Niemi requested to be the last to speak. Rather than reiterate her feelings that ocean farming must be closely controlled to prevent exploitation and environmental damage, she made a plea. This is to the director of Wales Forever. Mrs. Furness, give me the child. If you truly believe in God's work, give me the child, or it will not live. Days passed, and then Niamh received a terse message from the Foundation's matriarch, delivered in person by a young woman oceanographer, one who had attended several of Niamh's webinars. The handwritten note read, The child will be placed in your hands. My messenger, Ms. Montez, will help with the arrangements. In Greyfin, Niamh led the Foundation's vessel carrying the young orca in a watered sling. She hadn't seen Maleva's pod for weeks, but they found her within two hours of the ships leaving the San Diego harbor. Niamh entered the water first, in scuba gear. The young orphaned orca, a beautiful female called Seaflower by the Institute, was lowered into the rolling waves. Niamh and Tanya Montez, the whale's man caregiver, moved with her as she slipped from the harness into the open water, eyeing Tanya wildly and Niamh with suspicion. The pod drifted slowly in like ghosts, quietly clicking, two young females moving closest. Fights between orca pods were rare, and strangers were generally accepted or ignored as the extreme. DNA evidence showed that orca females rarely mated within their own pods, so interactions were common, if only for biodiversity. But there were no certainties. Seaflower clicked, and then one of the wild females whistled. The poor young stranger tried a soft whistle. And then the two females swam in a pattern before the newling, and she followed, away into the ocean gloom. Would Seaflower tell them of her life among the humans, her illness, the loss of her mother and sister? Was their language so richly sophisticated? Maleva appeared then, a dark, slow-speed torpedo. Tanya started to retreat, but Niamh waved her fear away. The orca swam closer, passing gaze on Tanya, 
then paused near Nimi, before swimming away with a rocking motion, disappearing after the others. The pod's whistles and clicks grew more distant. The following week, Tanya joined Niamh's inner circle. Following the publicity around Seaflower's release, scientists from China and Finland contacted Niamh with a proposal they said she would find attractive. They met secretly in an abandoned fisher's shed, with two of her assistants knocking around outside on the aged and warped pier. The researchers had a proposal, one that would have intrigued anyone who worked with a few whale species still observed in the wild. They sat away from her, as if repelled by her natural odor. Dr. Wen Zhang allowed Dr. Hearn Ruminen to speak first. We have a process. We can place a living human brain inside the skull of a young juvenile member of Orsinus orca. He explained how they intended to biosplice the nerves to the medulla oblongata. Microsurgery involving elaborate medical robotics and supercomputer AI. The rest of the details bulged like a tide and bowled into Niamh, where she sat in the small office of a fish market south of the city, one of the last places in the USA where one might avoid observation. She knew what they were proposing, even without the details. She would become a whale. Of course, the transition, said Dr. Zhang, in a precise voice devoid of accent, will be very similar to a new birth. Every aspect of living, breathing, swimming, eating, must be learned from the first day of life. There will be no parallel experience. No amount of empathy or living among the subject species will prepare the human participant for this irreversible process. When she didn't react, he cast a side glance at the rigid, gray-templed form of Dr. Ruminen. His voice lost some of its enthusiasm. This is why it is necessary to place the human brain into the skull of a newborn specimen. They knew of her writings on the interspecies connection, the potential for biological harmony, the only way for the tortured modern world to survive and then thrive. All living things were part of the same biome, the microcosm bound only by the limits of the atmosphere, and perhaps not even that. And yet these scientists, these researchers, although sympathetic to her cause, they felt this process, this experiment, this exploitation would be attractive to her. This was the best idea they could bring to her. Where will you find a recipient? She asked, without inflection. Her voice sounded brassy and alien, echoing in the small shack. She had grown to dislike speaking. She had taken to humming along with her many recordings of whale song, those wondrous voices now lost, like the songs of ancient humans. It will be necessary to capture a mature, pregnant female and extract a late-term fetus. Niamh nodded. She choked back her rage, told them it was a very interesting project, and thanked them for considering her. She would respond within a few weeks. She followed the research through spies she'd placed at their institutions. Months later, after they'd given up on her repeated postponements and found a willing participant, a young military scientist, when the capture ships were being stocked and prepared for the initial hunt, she and three assistants used guided drone submarines to attach deep sonic beacons on the ship's hulls near the drive units. She was able to track them at all times, and so were the orcas. 
their efforts to capture a pregnant female were unsuccessful. They came after her, of course. Not the researchers, but the others she was angering the most. International fishing corporations, whose ships were increasingly assaulted by marine life. Major religious institutions, whose spiritual message she was subverting with her drive for harmony and unity through nature. The message that humans lived within nature, and not above it. That all living things were citizens, not resources. Governments, whose citizens more and more refused to pay for the privilege of citizenship, who were choosing to join the growing movement to an untethered oceanic community. A community that wasn't just universally human, but for all creatures, all living things. She and many of her followers gathered on handmade rafts and platforms offshore from San Diego Harbor. They were harassed occasionally by military aircraft, but they were loose, able to deconstruct their floating base in minutes, allow the currents to scatter them, with the occasional help of friendly orcas. Humans' first movements hated her the most, and she found great satisfaction in that. More than once, vigilantes from anti-whale groups attacked them, with weaponized drones and small helicopters. Such attacks were never surprises, always given away by internet traffic, monitored with little effort by friends of Niamh's following. By the time the drones arrived, the flotilla would have vanished, dispersed as if it had never been. Save one vessel, a small submarine, floating among the black and white bodies and vaporous spray of orcas. If the attackers had looked closely, they would have seen that the largest orca female had a gray marking on one fin, in the shape of a human hand. When the drones fell upon them, they dove straight down, gone in seconds, beyond the reach of weapons, and soon beyond the reach of air-based radar and sonar. The attackers waited. They must rise for breath. The pursued did rise, single whales rising to breathe and dive again in dozens of locations miles apart, and Niamh's submarine was not among them. But the orca attacks on fishing ships became more sporadic, the losses less important. The scarcity economics that spread in every continent brought more famine, more disease, and more anger. The world was coming to war, and Niamh's pesky social experiment was forgotten for a time. It became a dim, distasteful memory to most, but to some, a legend. Her following, hidden in ocean shadows, continued to grow, and with less food competition from other whales and sea predators, the number of orcas and the few dolphin species grew with her following. On a day of gray skies, Maleva lingered by Greyfin, not venturing out, not blowing vapor well up to splash on Niami, where she ate her sea greens, not following the others as she had come to do, watching the younger ones hunt the seas and return to the old grandmother with a hunk of flesh. The time had come for her to pass on, and knowing it was coming still hadn't prepared Niami. Twenty-five years had passed for them together. She had loved this whale woman more than her own mother. The connection between them, this was the fabric of heaven, the hope of eternity, the bond of hand to flipper, bodies, worlds, universes. Maleva, a Slavic name meaning gracious. Maleva's steamy breaths came slower and shallower until they just ceased. 
her body rocked against Greyfin's hull, as against a lover. Soon, several big females came to grasp the Elder Mother by her fins and pull her away, to where Niamh never knew. Niamh had not wept in many years, but with this loss, she remembered how. The years passed like cool ocean waters passing over the skin, leaving the sands and stings and memories of great swims. They are thousands now, living on a floating island caravan just within sight of the coast, where lay the war-damaged cities and their damaged people. Ropes of kelp and knots of barnacles and coral cling to the old fishing nets and foam plastic balloons lashed beneath, providing ballast, stability when storms rage against it. Gardens spring from the sand and dirt they've collected, seeds and feces dropped by birds, thousands of them. Shimmering fish pinwheel and swarms around and beneath the island. The caravan moves on the wind, nudged at times by those who built cloth sails and turbine masts, holding it in favorable waters. Guarded by orcas, guided by the moon, the stars, the sun. It is a warm night. Niami climbs from the tarnished and dented and welded hull of Grayfin to gaze upon the caravan a quarter mile away. A floating city-state it has become, nothing she ever imagined or wanted, a thing sprung from the harmony of being, the harmony of beings. She may have inspired it, but she isn't part of it, is she? Haven't they come for themselves, thinking of her as an idea only? She walks among them sometimes, the hushed tones as she passes, the orcas ever-present. The symbol of the mother orca, Maleva, is sewn into many of their sails, with the gray, human hand pattern on her fin. The night sky is brilliant, bisected by the pale ribbon of the Milky Way. Her sense of smell is going the way of her body, her sight, her strength. Yet the sea air is alive with salt and life, and the hint of death, the ultimate certainty. There is harmony even in the smell of the sea. How many worlds out there have lost their harmony? How many have lost their whales? This is the ocean, a pool of interaction, living and passing on, woven lives and minerals and elements, harmony in a word. One cannot escape it, not without leaving most of oneself behind, in the infinite song that bounces from shore to shore, island to continent, depth to sky. Come back, lights. Bring our people back home. The sky remains quiet. The lights do not come. They stopped coming decades ago. Away over in the colony, flutes and horns, stringed boxes and deep drums begin to play a lilting song. Not a song, really. More a feeling, a yearning, a reaching out for ears and jaw teeth to hear. Wailing, whistles, Clicks of wood and stone and metal rod. Language in every form, every pitch, vibration in every frequency. Beneath her, the orcas speak, respond to the music, join the conversation. Niami has listened to their voices for so many years now, decades, that their language has become her own, like it was her first. She hears every sound, every idea, every dream. They are thousands now on hundreds of floating pods in every sea and ocean, 
around and near every port. The human orca communities in salty seas all over the planet, patrolling the shoals, monitoring the sea farming, keeping it within sustainable boundaries. There is spillover, communities on land springing up, the harmonizing of humans with other primates, elephants, even forests, nearly doomed at one time, but sprouting back to life. The movement was now a tidal wave. It all started with a few real believers dipping into the water, a ritual they all performed now to leave the security and technology behind for a short time, to become one with the sea, one with the orcas, to be completely vulnerable, to have a faith like no other, the faith in the impossible community of living spirits. They didn't call it a baptism. They didn't call it anything. The pain hits Niamh again, this time too hard to ignore. The malignancy that spread from her lungs, microdust sarcoma, doctors explained, a condition even bathing in the nurturing salt waters can't cure. So many afflicted with it now. If only she'd had more time to build the sky pods, communities of humans and birds to patrol and scour. She tries to breathe, but great invisible hands crush her from both sides. Niamh? Tanya hears her fall, rushes from Greyfin's cabin, is there, grasping her shoulder. It's <sighs> time, sister. No. Yes. I need to be in the water. Dark fins cut through the ocean soup in the twilight. They always know somehow, the tall black fins of the males the shorter, sometimes curved dorsals of the females. And there, among them, sea flower, tulip-shaped patches of white on her flippers. They always know, these great beings, these wise ones of the sea. They know when one of their own is about to pass. Help me get these off. Niamh struggles to unbutton the shirt and trousers, but Tanya is there to help. Many more orca come, as Tanya helps her ease into the cool water. So nice, so delicate a caress on her skin. Where are the lights? Niamh studies the sky, knowing they are coming. Coming to bring their friends, their other peoples back home. The world is better, ready for them. There is harmony now. Isn't this enough? What, Niamh? I can barely hear you. No matter. She can't draw the breath to talk. The whales are around her in the water now, buoying her up, nuzzling her, holding her up to the crisp air as they would a newborn calf. Funny that the air bites her lungs so. Funny how the sky darkens. Is a storm coming? There. Lights in the sky. Moving across the stars. No satellite or abandoned space station. No. These lights are falling, growing brighter as they sink through the miles of atmosphere. Great tankers of water, carrying the children of those huge beings who left before. They are coming. She has done enough. Her peoples are coming home. That was Saving the Whales by C.J. Eric. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or whatever platform you listen to us on. Or, better yet, share the magazine and podcast with a friend. If you'd like to listen to more speculative fiction, visit us online at magazine.metaphoricist.com or on Twitter at MetaphoricistMag. 